have been uh, very significant and have had tremendous consequences. Um, but here is possibly one of the greatest, most profound meetings of history, and I hope I'll be able to show you why. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The Pharisees were a group in uh, first century Israel whose objective was to live as closely as they possibly could by the moral requirements of the first five books of the then scriptures, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of Moses. The scribes labored endlessly to codify that law, and so they had created how many hundreds of laws from it, but it was the Pharisees who sought to live by it. Um, They were a reform group. At the most, they only numbered 6,000, so they were a fairly intimate brotherhood, as it were, of committed religious leaders. In the temple at the time, the main ruling was done by a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were perhaps more aligned with issues of power and authority than of strict religious living, and there was quite a conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, Jesus, shortly before this, had cleansed the temple driving out people who were using it for trade effectively and exploiting the religious rights of the day for financial gain. And so that was effectively one in the eye for the Sadducees. So it appears that there's a group of Pharisees. You notice how Nicodemus says to Jesus, we know, in uh, verse 2. It appears that he's representing perhaps a small group of Pharisees um, who are rather pleased with what Jesus has done. And also, as religious reformers, they're looking for the Messiah. And it appears that Nicodemus has come and he has some hope that maybe this reflects the truth about the Lord Jesus. Do you notice when he comes? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. You could read a fair amount into that because John in his gospel does contrast light and darkness. And for John, darkness represents sin and evil and light represents truth and the Lord Jesus. He was the light of the world. He is the light of the world. So perhaps there's a a mild background to this that Nicodemus comes at night because Nicodemus is coming in ignorance. And I think there might be some truth in that. But um, let's say that you wanted to make an appointment with uh, Dick Haffenden. And you say to Dick, it's really important that I meet you. When, when could we meet up? Now, Dick is an extremely busy individual whose calendar is packed. When is it most likely that you get some time alone with Dick? Well, I suggest to you that it's probably not often going to be in the working day. In the working day, he's very busy examining accounts and doing all the other things that he does. So if he was going to give you some time, he'd probably say, well, it would be most convenient, please, if we could meet after work. Jesus has spent his time ministering publicly now for some months. And during the day, he's surrounded by crowds and by his growing band of disciples. Nicodemus is probably very hesitant about appearing um, in front of large groups of people 
to have some kind of engagement with the Lord Jesus, and it probably wouldn't be possible to do it during the working day. So I think his coming to Jesus this night is principally because he wants a one-on-one with Jesus, and given Jesus' very public ministry, that's the most likely time he's going to get it. So he turns up at night. Now, who is this man, Nicodemus? So at the time, Israel was under uh, the control of the Romans. The Romans had invaded, but they had accorded to the Jews quite a lot of privilege in terms of how they organized their own lives and religious observance and so on. So the body at the top of Israel was the great Sanhedrin. Now, every town in Israel had its own Sanhedrin. Capernaum, where Jesus based himself, had its own Sanhedrin. That would have numbered about 23. But the great Sanhedrin that met in the Hall of the Hewn Stones, in the temple complex in Jerusalem, numbered 71. The high priest sat as the chairman of it. And that body, the great Sanhedrin, um, sorted out all religious and political and legal issues for the nation under the permission of the Romans. Interestingly, at this time, the Sanhedrin had sufficiently irritated the Romans that the Romans had removed from them the authority of the death penalty, which is why when the Jewish leaders wanted to put Jesus to death, they had to intercede with Pilate and ask him to authorize it because the Romans had withdrawn that privilege, as it were, to themselves. But other than that, this is the body that rules the land. If you like, it's the equivalent of our Houses of Parliament. Um, I don't know enough about American politics to say quite what the parallel is there, but you will understand, I'm sure. So Nicodemus is a member of this ruling body. Nicodemus probably doesn't strike you as a very um, Hebrew name, and it's not. It's a Greek name. It means one who conquers the people. So his parents obviously had ambitions for him. Um, But the fact that he had um, a Greek Hellenistic name given to him um, suggests that he was a member of effectively the equivalent of aristocracy. He was a leading family from a leading family in Israel, and he would have been very highly educated. The fact that he continues to call himself Nicodemus, he would have been given a Hebrew and a, a Greek name. He chooses to follow the Greek name. Um, As it were, he is wearing his academic credentials a little bit in public. But Jesus accords him a tremendous title. Do you see, after the challenge that that Jesus gives and then Nicodemus' reply, how can these things be? In verse 10, Jesus challenges him and he says, are you the teacher And in the original, that's very specific. Are you not a teacher, but are you the teacher in Israel? So here is a man who has given his life to studying the law, to living it out, to being part of a committed reform group who is a member of the Sanhedrin and is evidently recognized as the leading theologian in Israel at the time of Jesus' ministry. I mean, I'm afraid I have to say that uh, 
that if we had 20 questions about the Old Testament as a competition here, Nicodemus would wipe the floor with us. He probably had most of the Old Testament committed to memory. He was a remarkable man. He was a powerful man. He was a very impressive man. He was an extremely well-connected man. But the really interesting point is that one night he comes to see an unqualified, largely unrecognized and despised peasant from a small village in the north, despised. Can anything good come out of that village? Can I attempt an illustration to, to draw just how remarkable this meeting is? We're sitting here, and you hear sirens in the distance. The sirens grow louder and louder, and then you hear vehicles drawing up outside the church here. The doors open, and tall, thin, muscular men in dark suits enter the building with funny things in their ears. And they spread out around the walls and so on. And then we notice that some of them are congregating over there where Bond is sitting. And uh, somebody comes up to me and says in an American accent, which I can't do, he says, uh, excuse me, uh, minister, we're just going to have to interrupt your service for a brief moment. And now, please, uh, you all have different views about American presidents. So choose the American president that you most admire. Okay? Through the door comes the American president. And we're all sat here going. And he walks across to Bond, and he says to Bond, Bond, may I just have a word with you, please? And Bond and the president go through into the back room, and we're all sat here amazed with all these guys watching us from around the sides of the room to make sure nobody moves. And after about ten minutes, Bond comes back and he sits back in his seat, and all the guys gather around the president, and the president goes out the door and disappears. We hear the vehicles start up, and then the sirens recede into the distance. And we're all sat here going, ah. Do you know, Bond told us that he was here doing a PhD in ancient languages of Norse and Celtic Irish and that kind of stuff. But obviously, he's not that. The president just came and took him away and spoke with him in the back room. Bond is obviously somebody much different to what we thought. He must be somebody really, really important. Bond, I hope you'll forgive me using you as an illustration, but it's great to have you here this morning for that purpose alone. This is pretty much what's happening here. Nicodemus would not come to see some itinerant village. What would be the polite phrase? I don't know. But instead, we have him coming to this relatively unknown, unqualified individual as the leader, theological leader of the nation and powerful member of the Sanhedrin and saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a man sent from God because no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. It's an extraordinary meeting. And do you see how extraordinary it is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at all? 
Why would the president want to come and speak with Bond? Why would Nicodemus want to come and speak with Jesus? And surely the answer to that must be that Nicodemus, in all his privilege and station and education, has recognized that there is something profound that he's missing. He has a hope, a hope that God would send a Messiah to restore Israel to her former glory. But there's something more going on here than just that political aspiration, isn't there? Rabbi, we know that you are a man sent from God because no man can do. Nicodemus has the humility to recognize that spiritually he has something missing. And please may I challenge you this morning. You may feel that actually you've got very good Christian credentials perhaps because of your upbringing, perhaps because of your church attendance, perhaps because of the instruction that you've received in different ways, perhaps of the studies that you've done, perhaps because of the family that you come from. You may feel, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. God will be pleased with me. Nicodemus, in a much more privileged position than any of us here, recognizes that's not the case. My friend, could I ask you to consider that for you that might not be the case. See, it's easy for us, isn't it, to say that because the phrase, you must be born again, it resonates in this passage, that this is an obvious text for preaching to the unconverted um, who need to be born again. And that's true. But think for a moment about the two people involved in this meeting. One is the theological giant of the day, and the other is the Son of God. That's who this is dealing with, not the people. And so if we think, no, no, this isn't for us, we're above this, we're profoundly mistaken. If Nicodemus needed to be humbled by the Lord Jesus, how much you and I need to be humbled before him too. So Nicodemus comes to see Jesus by night. He expresses his admiration of Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus has done some amazing things. Jesus responds in verse 3 very bluntly. Now remember that the culture of first century Israel was a culture of shame. It was really, really important that you were respected and honored. And to be shamed was deeply, deeply hurtful and distressing. Even more so than our culture, and our culture is, is still largely a culture of truth um, and honesty rather than shame and disgrace. But Jesus responds to Nicodemus's really quite um, gracious and respectful uh, opening gambit with something that's very blunt. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How's that for a comeback? It's terribly un-British. Even if my sermon was absolutely dire this morning and you all thought you'd wasted your time coming to church, almost none of you would say that to me afterwards because you're too kind and polite and that's not what we do, is it? 
<laughs> we go home and we have roast preacher around the dinner table. We don't roast the preacher at the door. But Jesus is just straight in. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then there's this uh, engagement with Nicodemus. You might notice that as you go through the passage, Nicodemus starts by saying more and ends up by saying almost nothing. Jesus starts by saying very little, ends up by saying much more. Nicodemus is confused. You're talking about somebody being born again. How can that happen? Nicodemus, uh, thinking literally, uh, how could I possibly be born a second time? I'm now a full-grown adult. The mechanics wouldn't work. Jesus' response in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I say to you, you must be born again. Can I just say, around this question of water and the Spirit, um, the commentaries have a whole range of different interpretations of that. Um, It seems to me that from the way that Nicodemus responds to Jesus... He understands that Jesus is talking about natural birth. Because Jesus says to him, you must be born again. He says, that's physically impossible. Jesus says, unless you're born of water and the spirit. And Nicodemus still comes back with questions about a literal physical birth. So my understanding is that water here refers to a natural birth with the breaking of the waters and so on. And then the the spiritual element, that which is born of the spirit of spirit, is Jesus referring to the second birth, the new birth in regeneration. Nicodemus is really struggling with this. And Jesus attempts to give him an illustration to help him understand in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus is saying there is something that goes on here that you experience but you can't really explain or see in human physical terms. Now, um, some of you here will have um, given birth. Um, and uh, when, when as a minister I would go and visit members of the congregation who had given birth, I was looking for the evidence The evidence would be a young child making lots of noise normally. And so when they said, I've I've given birth, I would go and I would see that that was absolutely the case. Uh, Normally the mum would be really worn out, um, having had all the experience of, of birth, but would be really joyful. And there would be a little bundle of joy squawking and demanding as they do. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look, I'm telling you about something that you might not fully understand, but has consequences. It's like the wind. Okay, nowadays we've got supercomputers and we can have a go at predicting where highs and lows will be and say something about general wind direction and strength and so on. But it still remains the fact, doesn't it, that as you walk down a street, you've no idea where the next gust of wind is coming from or how strong it will be. Those of you who wield umbrellas know the the challenges that there are when it comes to understanding what the wind is going to do. And Jesus is saying, it's like that, Nicodemus. God does something, and what you see is the evidence that he has been at work. So in the case of a natural birth, it's a, a noisy baby. 
What is it then for a spiritual birth? What is the evidence that someone has been born again? What are the signs that the wind is blowing? And again, I would invite you now to examine your own heart. If you're here this morning and your testimony is that God, by his spirit, has graciously worked in you to bring rebirth, my question meant pastorally to you is this. Where is the evidence? It's easy to say, I'm a Christian. Let me ask just a few diagnostic questions. Do you find in your heart a real love for the Lord Jesus? Do you recognize that he is of more value and worth to you than any possession or any career or any relationship in this life? Does thinking of the Lord Jesus produce in you joy? Desire to serve him well? A real heart's yearning to imitate him in terms of the way that you deal with others. As you come here to church this morning, is it your desire to see your brothers and sisters in the faith built up and encouraged? Or is there some other lesser desire which doesn't honor the Lord Jesus? Do you love the fellowship of the saints? Is being in church a a ritual? Or is it a joy to you both because it's an opportunity to praise and worship the Lord and be fed, but also to enjoy fellowship with the family, to share one another's burdens, to engage in one another ministry. Is that what's happening? What's your relationship with the word of God? Is scripture on your shelf? It only comes down on Sunday mornings, perhaps if you use the, the church notice sheet, not even then. What about prayer? Is your heart so invested in the Lord Jesus that actually to speak with him is a delight? But more than that, recognizing your deep spiritual needs that you come to him to plead, plead for yourself, plead for others, that your hearts desire that the church should grow and be filled with all the multitude who will worship before the Lord Jesus at the great day. Is that the evidence? My friend, if there's none of that, then hear the words of Jesus. You must be born again. That's not me having a go at you. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Truly, truly, you must be born again. George Whitfield was perhaps the greatest uh, English preacher And uh, he would tour the United Kingdom and he toured North America on preaching uh, missions, we might call them. And uh, it was the day when they had started newspapers, so there were newspaper reporters. And on one occasion, he was interviewed by a newspaper reporter who said, "Um, Mr. Whitfield, I've heard you preach many times. And often your theme is, you must be born again. Why do you so often preach on the theme, you must be born again? And Whitfield said, 
Because, sir, you must be born again. And that's right. If there's one thing that you and I must have in this life, we must have it. It's the new birth. And yet it's beyond us. I can't make you born again. You can't make you born again. You're born not of the will of man, but of God. So if you're here this morning and this doesn't make a great deal of sense to you, then what I say is you, like Nicodemus, must come to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask by his grace that you might be born again as he says you must. And in his mercy and grace, the Lord Jesus Christ will not turn any away who seek him truly. Praise God. But, as we move into the third section of this, um, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? And then Jesus enters into uh, this long final discourse that we have recorded here. Um, He rebukes him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. I think that's really interesting. From a theological perspective, that's really interesting because Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I've just said to you something that we might think is very New Testament. You must be born again, you must know the rebirth, you must be regenerate, you must repent and believe and so on. But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I've said that to you and you don't get it, and yet you're the teacher of Israel. In other words, what I'm saying to you is completely in the warp and woof of the Old Testament. Everything has been leading forwards to this. And uh, you might think, no, I, I don't see that. But Jesus gives us a wonderful illustration of this. He gives it to Nicodemus, but John recalls it for our benefit. What is it? Well, it's this. The people of Israel um, were slaves. It's the great picture in the Old Testament of our condition. We are slaves to sin. We do all these things that we think we need to do that will satisfy us and give us what we need in life, only to find that they're broken systems and they don't deliver. The children of Israel were literally in slavery to uh, the Egyptians. And God led them out through the ministry of Moses with his mighty right arm. And he provided for them in amazing ways. The manna in the wilderness, water from rocks. And they were a complete rabble. They'd never been taught any military skills. Yet they were on a mission to wipe out the Canaanites and cleanse the the promised land of foreign people and so on. All of that. And the people are just a nightmare. Just a nightmare. And as we read in our first reading from Numbers 21, they whinge and moan and gripe and complain. It would be better if we died in Egypt. At least we had cucumbers and onions and leeks and all that kind of stuff. And the Lord was so incensed with his people that he inflicted these poisonous snakes on them. And when a snake bit a person, that was fatal. And the people were dying in droves. And the horror of the situation brings them to their senses and they come to Moses and they say, Oh, Moses, help us. We recognize we've sinned. Please intercede for us. Please sort this out. Please save us. And so Moses prays to the Lord and the Lord says, right, here's what you've got to do. You've got to make a bronze serpent and you've got to put it on a pole and you've got to lift it up in the middle of the camp so it's visible from all around. And when anybody's bitten, when they have the poison, the venom running through their veins, 
They must look, look to the serpent. And as they look to the serpent, they'll be saved. They'll be well. They'll be cured. It was an amazing sign, wasn't it? And I think if you'd been an Israelite at the time, you might have been a bit bemused. Why a serpent? Why on a pole? Why lifted up in the middle of the camp? Why does that cure us? And Jesus is saying, well now, Nicodemus, let me make it crystal clear for you. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever looks to him will be saved. In other words, there's something about Jesus and his being lifted up that can cure the lethal toxin cursing through our bodies, sin. Jesus was lifted up. He was lifted up on a cross. It was a brutal, awful, desperately inhumane way to put somebody to death. But Jesus submitted himself willingly at tremendous personal cost to that horrific death because by doing so he became our substitute. I'm here this morning because the man who preaches unwell and can't undertake the booking. I'm a substitute. I'm trying to do what he would do for you to point you to the Lord Jesus to encourage you in God's truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect substitute for us because on the cross he accepted the punishment that you and I deserve so that our sins might be forgiven. So that if we look to him in faith and trust he will forgive our sin. Now there's a very, very famous uh, British preacher Arguably the first minister of a mega church called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. His Metropolitan Tabernacle building, rebuilt after it was destroyed, is still at Elephant and Castle today. Spurgeon, as a young man, came under tremendous persuasion that he was not right with God. He recognized that in him this venom of sin was flowing, and he desperately wanted to be rid of it. He wanted to know that he was forgiven and had peace with God. And he heard that there was a particularly famous preacher who was coming to preach in Colchester near where Spurgeon lived. And it was at the start of the year and the weather was really atrocious and it snowed very heavily. But Spurgeon was sufficiently desperate um, that he set out to try and get to hear this man preach. But the road conditions were so poor that he got into the outskirts of of, um, Colchester and could go no further. So he turned off in Artillery Road into a little primitive Methodist chapel. Spurgeon was quite rude about the primitive Methodists. He said that they sang and shouted so much that you'd get a headache if you went to their services. But he went in anyway. He was sufficiently desperate, and he sat at the back under a little balcony. And the weather was so poor that the appointed preacher couldn't come. And so there was just a small group of people there, and then Spurgeon says that this unlettered, untaught man who who had very little understanding got up into the pulpit to do his best to preach. 
And he preached on a text from Isaiah, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And Spurgeon says that uh, he read the text and he repeated the text a couple of times. And by that stage, he'd used up all his initiative and didn't know what to do next. But at that point, he spotted Spurgeon sitting at the back. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. And Spurgeon says, I was rather taken aback. I wasn't used to people in the pulpit remarking on my how I was appearing. He said, but the arrow struck home. And he said, and what this primitive Methodist then said was, young man, in order for you to be relieved of your troubles and so on, what you must do is you must look. Look to Christ. Look to the Lord and be saved. And then, being Clinton Methodist, he shouted, look, look, look. And Spurgeon says, in that moment, by God's grace, the truth came home. I'd been trying to do all kinds of things to make God pleased with me, to earn my forgiveness. He said, but in that moment, I understood that all I had to do was look, look to the Lord and be saved. And Spurgeon says, I looked and looked and looked as if I could have looked my eyes away. And by God's grace, there was a man born again who then had a tremendous ministry to the salvation of thousands of people and the establishing of tremendous ministries in London and throughout the world. So as I come to a close, that's the simple message for you. This morning what you must do is you must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There's nothing more you can do. The thief on the cross could do nothing. He was minutes away from death. All he could do was look and he looked and saw Jesus and asked for forgiveness and Jesus granted it to him. This day you will be with me in paradise my friend you too must look there's nowhere else to look you must look to Jesus and by God's grace be born again and I'm to lead us in a pastoral prayer and then we'll sing our song of response from Psalm 22 let's pray Our Father, we praise you that you are in heaven. We are on the earth and therefore our words should be few. But our Father, we want to praise and worship you because in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have provided for our deepest pastoral needs. Firstly, that we should be born again into a living faith that we might know and serve the Lord Jesus. And we pray for one another here this morning, Lord. We ask that for those who aren't born again, that your spirit graciously would work to bring new life. And for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us in the inner man by your spirit, that we might serve the Lord well. Help us to lay aside every sin, every encumbrance, and to run the race looking to Jesus, the author and finisher or completer of our faith. 
Father, we want to pray for your world. We want to pray that in those areas where there is tremendous conflict, that you would have mercy. We pray especially, Father, for the suffering church.